right now on Matter of Fact. Trapped by a blazing California wildfire. They had someone knock on their door at two in the morning. They said, you guys are next. It's probably a good idea if you go now. We go inside the massive effort to evacuate 22,000 people on the only road out. Then, these neighbors stood up for environmental justice. Because you're poor, because you are black, that you don't have to be politically impotent. How a North Carolina community fought the big polluters and won. Plus, with so much evidence, why are there so many climate change deniers? A lie can circle the world before the truth gets its boots on. That is what happens on social media. Meet the climate scientist from Texas Tech with some straight-talking advice on how to turn skeptics into believers. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. Global warming has been called a code red for humanity. Catastrophic weather events are increasingly affecting people around the world. In California, the Calder Fire, the 15th largest in state history, has burned nearly a quarter million acres and forced up to 60,000 people out of their homes. Despite that destruction, not one life was lost. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, has a story of the massive effort to move people to safety and the heartbreaking return to devastating loss. On a scorching September day, the residents of Grizzly Flats, a forested enclave in El Dorado County, California, are making their way back home, navigating the trauma of being wildfire evacuees. The initial warning came in, and then within two hours, then it was the mandatory evacuation, and we left with a lot of other people. Hi, how are you? We're doing the best we can. Like their neighbors, Steve Frazier and his wife, Rayanne, are gathering the supplies and the courage they need to confront their loss. Although the devastation is total, for Steve, there is still hope. I, you know, getting her out and my dogs were the most important thing to me. Here on the Frazier Street, out of the 12 homes that were evacuated, only two are still standing. All in all, nearly 800 homes were destroyed in the Caldor fire, but no residents were lost. It takes a lot of planning, um, you know, pre-planning pretty much to make sure you have the resources to, to conduct these evacuations. Evacuations that require high-level state and local coordination. In fact, fire officials determined Caldor's trigger points well ahead of orders to leave. The trigger point for Tahoe was somewhere in the Twin Bridges area. Um, so when the fire got to that point, we started to evacuate from the Echo Summit down into the Tahoe Valley. Over a two-week period, Cal Fire and the El Dorado Sheriff's Office initiated a series of evacuations, assisted by a reverse 911 technology called Code Red, a computer program where residents register to receive evacuation alerts. I can just click a polygon real quick around the affected area. Warnings and evacuation orders are launched here at the Sheriff's Emergency Operations Center. I can generate the message. It's automated, so it starts making phone calls and text messages immediately. Sometimes simultaneously, deputies will be in the area and officers to actually go to door to door to make sure all the residents are aware. We had literally on any given day as many as 100 officers and deputies from other agencies throughout the state 
um, assisting us. The state's Office of Emergency Services, or OES, says it doesn't create state regulations or standards for evacuations because local needs vary. Because wildfires are ever-changing, evacuation decisions are left up to each county. Still, there is one benchmark. The devastation of the town of Paradise three years ago is seared into the psyche of Californians. 85 people perished trying to flee the campfire. I think Paradise changed a lot for high mountain communities like ours. Tamara Wallace is the mayor of South Lake Tahoe, a resort city in the path of the Caldor Fire. They evacuated 22,000 residents through one road. We have a similar topography, I guess, to paradise. Because of the droughts in California, a lot of our trees are dead or dying. Um, we have a lot of fuel for fire. Our fire department, our police department, worked with the Nevada side, worked with the Forest Service, worked with the, the people who live and work here in our area. When South Lake Tahoe got their code red on August 30th, Mayor Wallace and her family joined their neighbors in evacuating. I wish them well. and. I told them that I would be praying for them. And um, and we got in our car and drove out of town or went and got in the big line of traffic. And I know people sat in a lot of traffic and it looked bad. But four and a half hours later, the entire community had been moved to safety. Now, with South Lake Tahoe residents back home and businesses reopening for tourism, Mayor Wallace is adamant about tackling the state's increased wildfires to avoid another tragedy. This was preventable. Three years ago, when that happened to Paradise, everybody pointed fingers. The left said it was the climate change. The right said it was lack of logging. And they were both right then, and they're both right now. And we need to stop fighting and fix it. In South Lake Tahoe, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Next on Matter of Fact. We vote next! A different kind of conversation about climate change. Climate change is the number one most politically polarized issue in the whole U.S. How do you start that conversation? Like, literally. Start with something that you both share. It could be a shared love of beer, and that is totally fine. And later, when trucks loaded with toxic waste came to their community, they sat down in the streets. What did you think when you saw these images of people in your home community putting their bodies down in front of these dump trucks? Wow, wow, everyday people standing up because they know this is a wrong. Lessons in environmental justice from Warren County, North Carolina. Is climate change an abstract concept? Scientists around the globe have answered with a resounding no. They point to strengthening hurricanes, widespread droughts, and the increasing number and intensity of heat waves. In fact, records from the last three months show nearly one in three Americans live in a county hit by a weather disaster. With all that evidence, why are there still so many climate change deniers? Professor Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist and an evangelical Christian who studies climate-fueled disasters. Her latest book, released this week, is called Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, what a pleasure to talk to you. I always enjoy our conversations. What led you to write this book? 
thousands of conversations, many of which didn't go well. I started to realize that when we approach this issue from a perspective of, well, I care about it because of who I am, and if you don't care about it, you have the wrong values or the wrong priorities, those conversations never go well. But if you stop and you get to know somebody and you find out that, you know what, they do care about a lot of things. They want to be a good person. They care about their family. They care about the place where we live. And it's not just if you care about hugging trees or polar bears or whales. It is if you care about your children's health if you're a mom. If you care about the place where you live and you don't want your house to be flooding. If there's a place on this world that you absolutely love that you want to be able to bring your kids to and have it still be the same as you remember. If you care about a healthy economy, whatever you care about, climate change is already affecting something that's at the very top of your priority list today. It seems like arguing with the cynic is not about telling them your values, but understanding their values and then connecting it to some of the data around uh, environmental science. I think that what holds a lot of us back from having those conversations, in addition to the fear that we're just going to end up more depressed and discouraged than when we started, the other fear that holds us back is, I'm not a scientist. You know, what am I supposed to say about temperature records and sea ice and global averages? But here's the good news. I don't think that that information is what changes people's minds and hearts. So the most important conversations that we can have are not about the science. They're about things that matter to us. I love talking about what's happening here in Texas, that we get 23% of our electricity from clean sources. I love telling people about the fact that, hey, did you know that food waste is a big part of the problem? We can cut down on how much food we waste and we can help the planet too. So if the, the most valued people are, are friends and family members, then how do you start that conversation? Like literally, what do you say? You want to open it with something that you agree with them on, not something you disagree with them on. Something that they're interested in, that they're passionate about, that they care about. I have started conversations by talking about knitting, literally, or by talking about um, the fact that I'm a mom, talking about my child, talking about the place where I live, talking about things that I love doing. Start with something that you both share. It could be a shared love of beer, and that is totally fine. It could be that you both play tennis or you run outside. Start with something you both care about and connect the dots to how climate change is affecting the thing that both matters to you. Are you confident, or maybe optimistic is a, a better word, that we're going to see real progress over the next decade? I'm afraid that we're going to see uh, a change in people's opinions as they start to be impacted by the increasingly devastated weather events. At that point, it means it's too late. The impacts are already here. That's why it's so important to connect the dots to say, you know what? There was a massive heat wave at West. Did you know that heat wave this past summer was 150 times more likely because of climate change? How did it affect you, your kids? What about the wildfire smoke? You couldn't even let your kids go outside to play for three weeks in a row. So what can we all do to make sure that that's not what the future looks like? This is the time to be having those conversations today. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, thank you for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Ahead on Matter of Fact, her town was about to be a dumping ground for toxic chemicals, but she wasn't having it. I was not trying to create a movement. I was doing what my mother told me to do, which was when you see something and you know it's not right, speak up against it. Meet the woman some call the mother of environmental justice. And later, we're racing to give you some good news about the fastest animal in the world. 
fighting environmental racism is never easy. The communities that are often targeted are under-resourced and lack the political power to fight off big polluters. That's the story of Warren County, North Carolina, where highly toxic chemicals seeped into the soil after an illegal dumping incident. Our special contributor, Joey Chen, visited Warren County and has the story of how the community came together in their battle for environmental justice. In a community where growing and God share space in the landscape, justice finally did roll down like the waters, although it traveled a twisted path to get here. From ancient times, the Tuscarora Indians saw healing powers in the mineral waters here. By the late 1800s, spas touted Warren County Springs as a cure-all for almost anything. The rural community remained best known for health and healing until 1982, at a fork in the road. Where was the site? The site is um, down this road right here, about a mile and a half. Time has healed and grown over the scars. But along this country lane, the state created a 25-acre dump site for toxic chemicals. Hundreds of truckloads of soil contaminated with PCBs, known cancer-causing agents. Why did they pick Warren County? I think for three reasons. We were poor, we were African-American, we were politically impotent. But they weren't powerless. Blanked by national civil rights and local church leaders, Dolly Burwell led her community in a first-of-its-kind environmental justice protest. By calling for an investigation of the EPA decision to allow the PCB to be dumped here. Hundreds were arrested, Burwell went to jail five times. People call you the mother of environmental justice. Yes, um, but you know, I don't call myself that <laughs> because, again, I was not trying to create a movement. I was doing what my mother told me to do, which was when you see something and you know it's not right, speak up against it. But neither prayer nor protest stopped the trucks. The toxic swamp remained until the early 2000s, when political will and new technology finally cleaned it up. Burwell says that's a lesson for today's environmental activists. That we may lose the battle, but the war we could win. And for me, that war was Warren County not becoming a permanent toxic waste site. Today in the community that launched the decades-long fight for justice, a new activism. The church that sheltered the 1982 protesters now has a health ministry, tied to the county's environmental action team, and led by Reverend Bill Carney, a Warren County native who returned after decades as a D.C. police officer to pursue social justice. But yet and still, we feel like we don't have a voice. Do you think you've been underestimated at all as a community? I think so. And that's what excites me about the story. Uh, everyday people came together in one voice to resist uh, powers that be. And while he admires what the early activists achieved, Carney still questions what might have been. Suppose that $18 million that was used to remediate the site had been used for education, health opportunities, job opportunities, housing, how much further down the road we could be as a county, but 
From my perspective, is it's like we buried $18 million in the ground. Today, his focus is on the road ahead, demanding state leaders better monitor environmental assaults on communities of color and holding up Warren County as a model for environmental justice. Because we don't want to be known as the bump site, but we don't want to forget it. So I think as we move forward, we should always be aware that we got dumped on, but we birthed a movement. A movement that still grows and brings hope for even the smallest communities trying to make a difference. For a matter of fact, I'm Joey Chen in Warren County, North Carolina. Nobody, any, anyone else this morning. Next on Matter of Fact, every piece of plastic ever made is still on the planet and only 9% gets recycled. Is America ready to break free from plastic? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now to a segment we like to call We're Paying Attention Even If You're Too Busy. Maine and Oregon are the first two states to pass laws requiring businesses to pay for recycling the plastic packaging they make. Maine requires companies to cover 100% of the costs. Oregon's law makes companies pay about 28% of recycling costs, while taxpayers cover the rest. Now there's a movement for federal legislation. The Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act was reintroduced in Congress this session. What's behind it? Well, first, advocates want businesses to be responsible for the waste they produce, just like taxpayers help with recycling costs for their households. Plus, the U.S. was selling a majority of its plastic waste to China until China banned those imports in 2017, which caused more plastic to end up in dumps and incinerators. As for the proposed federal legislation, so far, no hearings have been scheduled. Ahead on Matter of Fact, the buzz about the Butterfly Highway. Finally, we're all in the mood for some good environmental news. Cheetahs have returned to a wetlands park in Zambia after a century of absence. They're the fastest land animal in the world. Experts say there are fewer than 6,700 African cheetahs in the wild. A small number of cats have been released to the park where they're expected to help restore biodiversity. And in the United Kingdom, the nonprofit Bug Life completed the first phase of its Butterfly Highway project. It's an effort to connect wildflower habitats across the country into a kind of pollinator pathway. Another benefit, the restoration of native grasses, also improves air quality. Once completed, the project is expected to be an insect superhighway. Huh, okay. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about a massive effort to evacuate families in the path of a wildfire, a climate scientist giving advice on how to talk with climate change deniers, a North Carolina community that fought for environmental justice and won, and efforts to make businesses pay for the plastic packaging they make, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.